We are in Galatians chapter 1. Think for a moment about a hard case. Think about the person in your life who is not a believer in Jesus Christ that you have prayed for, talked to, thought about, longed to see come to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe a parent, child, sibling, spouse, someone who is precious to you, someone who perhaps you have been heartbroken in your endeavors to share the gospel with them and they have not come to faith in Christ. And maybe this loved one is a really hard case. Maybe they've, they've heard it, not interested, or antagonistic, opposed to Jesus Christ. One of the people whose testimony sort of fits that category of hard cases is the author of a book. It's called Gospel Comes with a House Key. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. Let me do this before I say anything about the book. So it is practicing radically ordinary hospitality in our post-Christian world. If you are someone who desires to make your home an outpost for Christ and, and to practice hospitality that would lead people to Christ, and you have not read this book, raise your hand, and first hand gets the book. There you go. I saw that hand. <laughs> so you're going to have to work together with your mom, I think, on this deal. <laughs> Enjoy it. It's a great book. So Rosaria tells the story in the book of um, 1997. She is a professor at Syracuse University, and she describes herself this way, an out lesbian feminist, a leader in LGBTQ rights, the recent co-author of the first domestic partnership policy at Syracuse University, and a soon-to-be tenured radical. She was at a stage in life where she was setting out to write a book that was, as she says, to quote, a book on the religious right and their politics of hatred against people like me. Um, she was hostile toward Christianity. And so in the course of her research for this book, she encounters a pastor and his wife, and they strike up a relationship. Now, it started out with her writing an op-ed about the Christian men's movement and criticizing it, and he wrote a letter to her, just asked her some questions, just some, some sort of worldview questions to start the conversation. And in her mind, she saw this as an opportunity to engage with the enemy, to try to get inside the head of a, a believer. In fact, that's exactly what she describes in the book. This was a chance to get inside the head of a true believer. She was not meeting to make friends. She reached back out, and, and he offered have her come over for dinner, and, and this was not a friendship thing for her. In fact, she writes, Christians seemed like a small-minded, uncharitable, immoral bunch. They ate meat, believed in corporal punishment, violated human and environmental rights at a fevered pitch, denied a woman's right to choose, and believed that the whole world should fall under the totalitarian obedience to the Bible, an ancient book fraught with racism, sexism, and homophobia. That's her worldview coming into this meal, this conversation with this pastor and his wife. She said, and she used the word enemy. She saw Christians as the enemy, and she wanted to try to make sure that she had done her research well into the side that she was going to write about. And so she 
begins with this meal, and it starts a two-year on-and-off relationship of studying Scripture together with this pastor and his wife, of challenging one another and debating one another to the point that she was confronted even by friends from the gay community who were concerned by what she was doing and by this engagement that she was having. And over the course of those two years, she writes, the Word of God got to be bigger inside me than I, and Jesus became real to me, whether it fit with my politics or not. God gloriously saved her. And she's now written some wonderful gifts to the church. That book is fantastic. I would encourage you uh, to, to read that. And some of her other writings are just gifts to the body of Christ. Her testimony, she tells another one in that book of a, a neighbor of hers, speak to the power, the remarkable power of God to save sinners. Even the hard cases are no match for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And nowhere is that clearer than in the passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning in the last half of Galatians chapter 1. Let me just say up front, Paul, in this last part of Galatians 1 into chapter 2 and at other points in the book of Galatians, is autobiographical. He, he's using his own testimony at various points. Almost a fifth of the book, in fact, is, has some degree of him describing his own story. And, and the purpose in him doing this here at the end of chapter 1 is basically to build on a point that we looked at last week in verses 6 through 10, in which he stressed the fact that the gospel is God's gospel, that there is only one gospel. You recall we saw that in verses 6 through 10, that, that Paul was saying, the gospel that I came and preached to you is the gospel of God. It is the saving good news of God's giving to man eternal life through faith in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So his stress is on the fact that there is only one gospel, and our only hope is in that gospel, and he is building on that point when he gets autobiographical here. The, the gospel, we've talked about this already in the previous verses, it is planned by God in eternity past, it is carried out and accomplished by Jesus Christ in his dying on the cross, in his being raised from the dead to, to show that he had defeated sin and death, it is received by grace, it is of God's grace through faith, those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, to to add human effort to that gospel, to try to put other pieces of our performance in there, destroy it. It is, it is no longer the gospel. You cannot have the gospel plus good works. And so what, what Paul is stressing is there is just this one gospel, and you are called to respond to it by turning from your sin and trusting fully in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you add any other element to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you nullify the grace of God, and you devalue the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You effectively say that God's grace only gets me so far, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ only gets me to a point, but I have to do this stuff in order to be made right with God, and therefore you nullify God's grace. And the book of Galatians is confronting that kind of teaching. In, in particular, what we've talked about again, what's going on in the churches in Galatia, that churches that Paul has preached the gospel in, is after he has left, False teachers have come in, they are of a Jewish background, and they are coming in with this appeal of, listen, we know that you are being drawn to the Jewish Messiah, and that's good. We're here to get you there. We're here to sort of get you to Judaism so that you can then get to God, the God of the Jewish people, the, the creator God. So what they're essentially saying is if you really want to have Jesus as your Messiah, 
That's, that's a good desire, and you can believe that, but you've also got to come via the, the law, the Mosaic law, and all of the traditions we've built up around that law. And so therefore, for the, the males, this was circumcision. This was the celebration of the feasts and the traditions and carrying out all of the things that not only were the Mosaic law, but all that had been built onto that by legalistic teachers over the years. And so Paul's message, as we saw last week, is to write back to these churches in Galatians, say, no, what they're telling you is dead wrong. Don't, don't listen to this because there is no new and improved gospel. There is no gospel 2.0. There is one gospel. It is the gospel that I preach to you, which is of faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So don't listen to these ones who are coming to you trying to add something to it because there is only one true gospel. We know from the very first verse in Galatians that one of the issues Paul has to address is his own authority to say this. He starts in, in Galatians 1.1 by saying he is an apostle appointed by, that he has been commissioned by Jesus Christ. Paul understands that for them to embrace the gospel that he preaches and for him to say this is God's gospel and it is the only gospel that he must be speaking with the authority of God. And so he also becomes autobiographical in the sense that he is trying to deal with those who are portraying him, the messenger, as corrupt. The false teachers are coming in, and, and we don't know specifically what their attacks on Paul were. They may well have said, listen, we understand. He was a Jewish rabbi. He's got some good teaching, but it's incomplete. It, it, it's not going to get you there. What Paul's telling you isn't enough to get you right before God. And so Paul's having to come back and address his own authority as one who has been called by God, who when he speaks, can speak forth the truth of God's word. And so that's, that's what verses 11 through 24 are going to do. Paul addressing his testimony, how it is that he becomes a believer, how he becomes an apostle and one who can proclaim this gospel and say, this is the gospel of God. That is the, the primary point of this passage. He's dealing with it in verses 11 and 12. In fact, he, he basically outlines where he's going to go with it. Verse 11 of Galatians 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says, the gospel that I preach to you came to me directly by revelation from God. We know this from the book of Acts, chapter 9, when Paul is on the road to Damascus and he is confronted by the appearance of Jesus Christ from heaven. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? God shows himself to Saul being his, as he would have been known in Jewish culture, Saul, Paul, same person. God gives Paul the gospel. And Paul's point here. Primary point for the book of Galatians is, man didn't teach me this. Just like I wasn't appointed by a committee or, or, or sent out by a group of men, I was appointed by Christ. So too, I didn't get this gospel from men. I wasn't tutored by other men. Paul is essentially saying my experience is akin to what all of the apostles had. For the, the, the rest of the apostles, they have walked and talked with the living Savior, Jesus Christ. They saw him in his life and death and resurrection. Paul, as much as we know here from his life, did not. He knew about Jesus. We don't know what, to what degree he would have been familiar with Jesus in life, but certainly didn't have the experience of the other apostles in being a witness to the teaching and then the resurrected Jesus Christ. 
And so his point here is, but God revealed this to me. So even though I was born again, born sort of late, as he uses the, the term in 1 first, first Corinthians 15, untimely born, he's saying, I got it from God. And so this, this autobiographical part is necessary for the Galatians to believe Paul. If you're going to convince people that I am giving you the one true way of being right with God, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ, you must believe then that I am speaking as one who has been sent by God, who has the authority of God. And so he, he's autobiographical here so that they will trust his authority as the bringer of the message and accept his authority that he is literally speaking to them God's truth. So that's why... Paul gives this personal testimony in chapter 1, and it'll go on into chapter 2. And that is the primary main point in this passage. I'm going to primarily preach to you what is, I think, a secondary point, and I'm telling you that up front so you understand what the main point is. And, and, and I'm going to draw something out of it that I think you'll see very clearly in the text that comes through Paul's testimony. When he is telling us about himself, this passage in the course of him sharing his testimony, it is, is a remarkable demonstration of the powerful, saving work of God in rescuing sinners. It is a powerful testimony to the loving grace and sovereign grace of God to save even the ones that we think might be the impossible cases. So read this with me. Look at verse 13. He's, he's set the, the beginning that this is, why I, this is why I'm telling you this. I didn't get it from a man. This is how I got it. So that's the main point. But, but watch what he says in, in the course of his testimony. Verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. So Paul's main point is, the gospel that I am preaching to you is not some kind of man-made invention. It's not something that was put together by a school of thought, by several philosophers coming together and sort of navigating through what would sound like an appealing message. And so he is saying to the churches in Galatia, this was not an invention of man. What I preach to you is what God gave to me. It is what he literally delivered to me. Now, that's his main idea. But in the process, what he reminds us of is we should never lose hope over people who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should never stop hoping and praying and serving and loving and believing in the matchless power and saving grace and loving grace of our Savior. 
Here's why. Here's the first point. You see it in verses 13 and 14. Paul was a violent, self-centered sinner who hated Jesus Christ. In fact, was proud of his hatred of Jesus Christ. Paul was a violent, self-centered sinner who hated Jesus Christ. First introduction to Paul in the New Testament by name is in Acts chapter 7, although he's probably in the background at the end of Acts chapter 6. In in chapter 6, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are arresting believers, doing much as they had done to Jesus Christ. They are now beginning to persecute the church, and one of those who they arrest at the end of Acts chapter 6 is one who had been appointed to be a servant in the church. His name was Stephen. And scripture in Acts 6 and 7 say nothing but but glowing words about Stephen and his countenance and his faith and and his trust in God. And so he is seized by the Jewish leaders for his serving of Jesus Christ. It says Stephen was full of grace and power. And he's brought before the Jewish leaders, and they are trying to condemn him, but much like his Savior, there's nothing. They have nothing on him. Stephen is a beloved person for his faith and, and all that is about his life, and so they are bringing in witnesses to lie about Stephen. And as he's on trial, we get Stephen's defense in Acts chapter 7. And instead of defending himself, Stephen takes the opportunity to be in front of this group of believers and to preach the gospel to them. And he takes them back knowing that they are Jews and that they are versed in the Old Testament scriptures. He goes back from Abraham through the law of Moses to David and to King Solomon, and he works his way up talking about how they have repeatedly rejected the truth of God, rejecting the prophets sent by God until the point that he brings it up to the Lord Jesus Christ and says, you stiff-necked, rebellious people who always kill the prophets. Not exactly a winsome way to defend yourself in front of hostile enemies, but Stephen says, I'm going to speak the truth. And he confronts them with the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ who had been crucified before that. Acts 7.58 says an angry mob then dragged Stephen outside of the city to kill him, and it says they laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And a few verses later, it says Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Saul, who is Paul, is a young leader in the persecution of Christianity. And so he is the guy who, as the mob is taking them out, he's the one who's taking care of all the stuff, and he's the one who's shaking his head, and he's approving of everything they're doing to this innocent young man who they are putting to death. And there is Saul standing by with a zealous passion to see Christians destroyed. Acts chapter 8, verse 3 says, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is is Paul. This is the Apostle Paul before his conversion. He is going around house to house and finding people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, in particular Jews who now believe in Jesus Christ, who he counts as traitors, and he is having them arrested for punishment, for some form of persecution. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, he tells us that he was a a zealous man for the law. It says in Philippians 3, he was a Jew who lived for the law of God and all the traditions that were attached to it, a zealous persecutor of the church and a Pharisee. One of the distinctions about the Pharisees is that not only was there a commitment to the Mosaic law, but Pharisees were committed to all of the Jewish tradition that had been built up around the Mosaic law. If you go in my office, you'll see on my shelves, there's books of commentaries, uh, books that, that scholars, Christian pastors, others have written giving commentary on the scripture. They are not authoritative. They are man's wisdom saying this is what this passage might mean. 
But the Old Testament scriptures had been covered in tradition. Those kinds of commentaries in the Mishnah, the Talmud, had become, in the Pharisees' mind, as authoritative as the law. And so they just lived in this sort of rigid devotion to tradition and ideas that one Jewish leader had passed down to the next generation of how to interpret this and, and what this looks like in everyday life. God had given his law through Moses for the purpose of demonstrating God's own holiness and revealing man's sin. Guys like Saul came and they weaponized God's law, essentially by piling rules on top of it. They made it all the more impossible for the average person to even understand, much less keep, while, while flaunting their own supposed obedience to it, how they were somehow righteous because of what they had done. That's why Saul despised the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you have, when you have made your religious life packed with rules that you need to follow and traditions you need to keep in order to please God, and now someone preaches that what God is calling you to is faith in his son Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, put your trust in him and it's all of grace. That is completely contrary to what Paul had, had been preaching before. And so he is, as, as he describes it here, as Acts 8 describes it, he is on a search and destroy mission wants to find these people who call themselves Christians, and he wants to punish them for their faith. And it's, it's all, ultimately, as he describes here in verse 14, it's really all in the name of self-centered pride. Notice when he says in verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Understand Paul saying, you want to know what my heart motive was in all of this? This is why when, when we see in Scripture when it says that the, all of the, the righteous deeds of an unbeliever are like filthy rags, and we think, can unbelievers, you know, they, they can do good things. And here's Paul saying, yeah, so on the outside, people looked and said, man, he is zealous, and he is striving to be fervent for God, and, and he's kind enough to let us know in his heart, I was advancing beyond everyone. This was, this was all about me getting looked at and having people look at me and go, wow, he's really good. This guy is, he's more zealous than I could ever be. He's incredible. And, and, and that's sort of a glimpse behind the curtain. In Acts 22.3, Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manners of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way, that is Christianity, I persecuted it to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. There's Paul saying, this, this, this is my story. This is, this is how determined I was to destroy Christianity. I've lived in, in several areas of the country, and, and I, I feel like... Our area, this area, D.C. area, is, has sort of a unique distinction when it comes to academic and career achievement and boasting that goes with that. And maybe that's just because I had some time on the Hill. Those of you who've been on the Hill as well probably know this, at least to some degree, that this, this is an area that really, where, where you got your degrees and how many degrees you've got and what you've done, and, and it, it, that, that, that's all something to, to boast about. And it, it's the nature of politics. I remember somebody saying that 
you know, Congress is 535 class presidents. They're, they're all the best in their class. They're all the ones who want to be heard. And, and the staffers, you know, it, it, it leaks over. You know, we, we, we sort of follow after that. And so there's that, that, that temptation to be cutthroat and to be aggressive about your accomplishments and tally things up and score them and boast. I, Paul would have fit it in well. Pre-salvation Paul would have fit in well. When he, when he rattles off, and he says, I, I trained at, at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a famous rabbi, known as a scholar, renowned leader in Jewish teaching. So this is, this is Paul's way of saying, I went to the Ivy League of Jewish teachers. I sat at the feet of, of the rabbi Sidak. Kind of like we might rattle off, you know, what university, if, if you went to one that had really high academic standards, you might maybe boast about that. I went to Temple University, so I can't really, you know... This is, it's a good school, but I, I can't say, oh, I went there and awe people. Paul is awing them. They're impressed by this. It, it, it's as if, you know, I clerked for justice, whatever, you know. I, I was at his feet. Paul was determined to become a big-name rabbi. He was determined to be that man. I mean, that, that's the whole point of this, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my peers, my own age among my people, because Paul, who looked up to Gamaliel, was going to be that man who others sat at his feet and learned from him the ways of the traditions and one day would boast using his name. And Paul is convinced as he's doing that, that he is zealously pursuing God, all the while he is zealously pursuing adulation for himself, praise for himself, and the applause of men. Paul's not telling the Galatians this in order to gain recognition. He's saying all this because he wants to remind them of what are verifiable facts. In fact, he says at the beginning of verse 13, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism. I, I don't think that's entirely Paul came and shared his testimony. I think there's a reputation that goes with this guy that is known amongst Jewish circles because he is one who has been sent out by the chief priests and the council to synagogues all over the place when he was persecuting Christians. And so he's not saying anything surprising here when he, he's describing himself, he's saying, you don't have to look hard to, to prove any of this, that I'm, I'm not making any of this up, and you don't have to ask a whole lot of people in Jewish circles about who I was and what kind of life that I lived. It wouldn't take much asking around to realize that Paul was bent on annihilating Christianity because that was a conviction that ran deep in his soul. This must be stopped. And so Paul used every means at his disposal to crush Christianity, destroying families, going to their homes and arresting people and sending them off for punishment. And that's what makes the next two verses so breathtaking. Verse 15, but when he, when God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. There's that same thing, Kevin, when he was reading from Ephesians 2 before. But God, this is where we were, but God in his grace. And here's Paul saying, I was violently trying to destroy the church. I was harming people. I was ruining lives. I was wrecking homes, all for the sake of my advancement in Judaism. But God, God called me. 
God who had set me apart. Paul was a violent, self-centered sinner who hated Jesus Christ, and God reaches down into the midst of his anger and hatred while Paul is on the road to go to the next city to destroy more lives. While he is violently angry, God, in the midst of that, appears to Paul on the road. So why are you persecuting me? And, and this violent killer comes to faith in Jesus Christ and is transformed. Acts chapter 9 is that story of Paul on the road to Damascus when God reveals himself to Paul. Acts 9.1 starts like this. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Isn't that remarkable? This is, this is Paul in the moments before his conversion, seething still with rage at followers of Jesus Christ. Because in, in his mind at that point, how, how, you, how could you possibly embrace Jesus Christ and forsake, it seemed like, the law? How could, in his mind, it was just unfathomable that a Jew could now turn to Jesus Christ because it was just blatantly rejecting the law and dishonoring God. And he believes that such people deserve to be punished, even put to death. We know the Christians were terrified of Paul. The first person after Paul's conversion that is sent to him to minister to him essentially says to God, are you sure? I mean, his, his reaction is, Lord, I've heard about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints. Implied in that is, really? You, you want me to engage with him because we know what he does to us. That, that's, all that is just to help us grasp the miracle that takes place when God saves this guy. In the midst of his next mission to destroy people, God appears to him and by his matchless power and his loving sovereign grace reaches into the life of this murderous, hate-filled, bigoted, fanatic, and not only saves him from out of that, turns his life completely and thrusts him into ministry to proclaim this gospel to people. To, to not just turn, but now to be set free. And this, this enemy of the gospel says, I was called by God's grace. When he who had set me before, apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. That is a miraculous work of God what God does in this man's life. God revealed Jesus Christ to him and, and changes Paul's heart to the point that the one who was going house to house and taking people and arresting them to, to destroy their lives, to make them as miserable as he could, now will become a servant of Jesus Christ who himself will be arrested and thrown into prison and beaten and suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. That is God's work in this man's heart to transform it. It is a remarkable testimony to the power and grace of God to take a rapidly, violently hostile man, hostile toward anything connected with Jesus Christ, and cause him to bow his knee and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he should devote the rest of his life to serving him. You talk about hard cases. We're all sinners 
and we're all saved by grace. But here is God showing himself to Paul and in an instant changing his heart and his life, his purposes and his goals. We've read what happened next. Paul is a new convert in Christ. Here's this guy who had this, this desire for advancing, being noticed. Now he, he goes off. It says he travels south to the region of Arabia. Doesn't really give us much about what happened during that time. Paul does not appear to be in total isolation. No doubt there was still interaction with people. His point is, I was not in a place where other apostles were. I was not being taught in, in school by the apostles. But during those three years, he is in some sense being discipled in some way by God. He is being brought along in the whole counsel of God during that period of time. I, it, it's, it's purely conjecture. We'll acknowledge this up front. Ryan and I were talking about this during the break, that... that it's interesting that it's three years. The life of Christ, as best we understand, is through three years that he is with his disciples. Paul spends three years in some form of, of discipleship where he is being equipped in the whole counsel of God. Not to say that there's not a lot going on there. This is a guy who understood the Old Testament. He's now being made to understand this is how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all those promises. All the feasts, all the law, this is how it was all pointing to Christ. This is what you need to preach, is Christ. His growth, his learning in the counsel of God was between him and God. In some way, he is being directly equipped for ministry in a way that was not unlike what the other apostles had been through in their experience face-to-face -face with Jesus Christ. It says Paul finally reappears. Verse 18, he goes up to Jerusalem, and that's where he meets with Peter briefly. He meets with James, the brother of Jesus. If we go back to Acts 9, we know that the believers in Jerusalem's first reaction was still, hmm, don't know about this guy. We remember his history. We're still a little afraid of who he is. Paul leaves from Judea after a short time, and he goes further north. Um, and, and if we take a look at the map, goes up. So Judea would be south of Syria. So he goes back up into Syria and into Cilicia. There's Tarsus, the city that he was from, Antioch of Syria. And he begins preaching in those cities around the Mediterranean. And so when you come to the end of, of Galatians chapter 1, and it says, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. So he had, he had left Judea, gone up into Syria. They still hadn't seen him down there much except for that brief time in Jerusalem. They, speaking of the believers in Judea, they only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. That is such a wonderful summary of this passage. The one who persecuted us, who tried to destroy us, we now hear that he's out preaching the faith, that he's now out preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And who gets the credit? Does verse 24 say? God. All of God. Here is, here is a guy who went through the schools of Jewish achievement in the law, zealous for tradition, looked up to Gamaliel, wanted to be that guy that others looked up to. And Paul's now saying, you know what the greatest thing in life is? It is to be a trophy to the power of God. It is when people, when they hear that I am preaching, they don't go, oh, wow, Paul, what a great guy. He's so wonderful. They say, God did this. There's no other way to explain this. How does one who was persecuting the church and, and, and striving to make it extinct now preach the gospel unless God did this. And he is, 
He is found of, of all the credentials in life and acclaim he could ever pursue. His greatest satisfaction in life is people saying, glorify God because of him. What, what God did an amazing work in his life. We're all in that place. We may not have the, the testimony quite like Paul's. We didn't experience the gospel in quite the same way with a, a revelation of God, visible presence of Christ from heaven. Um, and so Paul's is a little different. There's no person who proclaims the gospel. There's no, somebody didn't hand him a tract and, and, and he read it. There was no, some written copy of the gospel. But all of us like him, we owe our salvation to the matchless power of God and his loving grace to save us. God does use human means to proclaim his gospel. If you were to share your testimony with us this morning, no doubt somewhere along the way there would be someone who talked to you. There would be someone who gave you a Bible. There would be maybe a podcast or a sermon or something you listened to, something that, that got you thinking and, and started you down that that path that God was moving you towards seeing Jesus Christ. Paul's testimony is unique. And Paul's testimony is not a case, it's not an argument for somehow us being complacent in evangelism. That we should somehow say, well, listen, you know, if, if that's how God can, can appear out of heaven and save Paul, well then I don't have to worry too much about evangelizing my loved ones and my neighbors. Because look at Paul. What happens after he is saved, what does he then devote his life to doing but preaching the gospel and discipling others? Paul understands what he has been called to, and that is to go and proclaim the gospel. And you and I should proclaim the gospel with hope. When we look at a passage like this, it should encourage us to believe that there are loved ones near us, and there are people that we encounter at work, and our neighbors and others through whom God may be using us to, to do that miraculous transformation in their lives. That's what you and I experienced. You, you may not have been murderous, breathing out threats against Christians before you were saved. You may not have necessarily regarded yourself as an enemy of the Christian church, but the fact of the matter is, as Kevin read from Ephesians 2, we were dead in sin. We were enemies of God. We were lovers of self. We, we, we wanted our own way. We, we started as infants wanting our own way, and we continued to want our own way. And we didn't want to bow the knee to God until God, by his power and his grace, one day breathed life into your soul and opened your blind eyes and caused you to, to see Jesus Christ in all of his glory and embrace him as Savior the miraculous transformation of a violent, self-centered sinner who hated Christ is a, is a marvelous declaration of the power and the grace of God to, to save even the hard cases. So, is there someone you thought about earlier when you were thinking about those hard cases? Is there some loved one that came to mind? I, I, hope, I hope this passage... I hope it gives you hope, because take heart. If God is able to do a work like this, know that we worship a merciful, saving, patient, just God who redeems sinners. And I want to encourage you 
this week to recommit yourself to praying to God and pleading for God to do that work in that loved one's life, in that person's life. And, and I want to encourage you and challenge you to pray that God would use you in whatever way that he would see fit, whether it be through talking to them, serving them, loving them, but showing them the gospel of Jesus Christ and speaking it to them as you have opportunity because we have a God that loves to save and is powerful to do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, as sinners saved by grace, we realize that we may not have a, a resume quite like Paul's, but we know where we were before Christ. We know what our hearts were like. We know as we were singing earlier that, that we were bound for hell, indifferent to the cost blindly, ignorantly, plowing along in rejection of the creator of the universe. And by your grace and in your power, you have saved. And so we come before you with glad and thankful hearts. Thank you that you are a patient and gracious God, just and holy in all your ways. We pray that our lives would be ones that people would look at and would glorify you on account of what you've done in us. That people would recognize that we are, we are not inherently good people or naturally kind people, that it is your work in us that deserves the credit for having transformed us. And Father, you know the, the loved ones that that are not yet trusting in you, that we are concerned for, we long for. We come to you, Lord, humbly asking that in your grace and mercy you would save them. Take a moment, and I'm just going to be quiet. And If you've got somebody that God has brought to mind, why don't you take a moment just where you are, pray for that person or persons. Father, we lift these names up to you because we believe that you are the God who saves. That if there is a heart transformation that is to take place, that ultimately it will happen in your work by your sovereign loving grace. We are, we are pleading for these souls. Lord, that you might use us in their lives as Vessels through whom the light of Christ would shine, that our words, our speech, our actions, that, that we would speak of Christ and the gospel, and that we would live out Christ and the gospel. Lord, we pray for the advancement of your glory through your people as we seek to minister in your name and call people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is for his glory and in his name we pray. Amen.